This week on Myths and Legends, it's the original story behind the Nutcracker. And we'll finally have an answer to that age-old question. What if our toys came to life? And were also attracted to children? Yeah. It gets weird this week. The creature this week is a Christmas creature who will let you know if you've been naughty. And she'll use her knife to do so. This is Myths and Legends, episode 167, Cracked. This is a podcast where I tell stories from mythology and folklore. Some are incredibly popular stories with surprising origins, like today's, and others are stories that might be new to you, but are definitely worth a listen. Today's story is the literary fairy tale behind the adaptation behind the famous ballet. We're going to jump right in because it's a long episode, but basically all you need to know is that we're in Germany in the early 1800s, with the well-to-do Stahlbaum family on Christmas Eve. Marie Stahlbaum and her brother, Fritz, rushed out to see the presents under the tree, the one stuffed with candied almonds, fruit, and lit candles, it was Christmas Eve, 1800-something, and they had just seen the shadow of the Christ kind, the Christ child, come and go, with that being the baby Jesus that flies into houses and gives children presents on Christmas Eve. Fritz got a whole legion of army guys, a fortress, a cannon, and a wooden hobby horse he could ride around the room on, shouting orders at his guys, and a heavily romanticized notion of armed conflict. Marie got dresses and dolls. All in all, good haul. And then... Drosselmeyer arrived with a large box under his arm. Judge Drosselmeyer was the kid's godfather, an older gentleman who covered his bald head with a white wig of glass threads and his blind eye with an eye patch. He fixed the family's clocks when they broke and, once a year, he brought the kids a present on Christmas Eve. He also just hung around the house on every other day of the year. This Christmas, it was a clockwork castle. Okay, so I mean... For the early 1800s, a completely custom and metal castle town where the humans went about their business completely automated was actually an impressive and time-consuming gift. Unless you're an eight-year-old boy. Okay, so can I go in the castle? Fritz asked. His third stupid question in as many seconds. Drosselmeyer, the godfather, narrowed his eye and turned to the kid. But was he serious? This was a toy castle. Fritz couldn't go in it. He couldn't have the people do other stuff. It was the early 1800s, and this was a big deal in its own right. Drosselmeyer was starting to get frustrated that the kids weren't getting this. Fritz threw up his hands. Done. He was done. If he couldn't go in the castle or the place couldn't be changed or the people couldn't fight each other like his army guys, he wasn't into it. A machine like this isn't meant for simple children, Drosselmeyer said to mom and dad in a huff. And dad not saying back that... Uh, Maybe he shouldn't have gotten it for simple children then. The night moved on, and Fritz went to have all of his army guys fight. And Mom asked Drosselmeyer about his fun clock thing. You know, the one that was meant for children, but not meant for children. Yeah, she'd love to see how all those gears fit together. Sure. So, just Marie and her father were left at the Christmas table. When something caught Marie's eye. Why, hello there. 
the seven-year-old Marie said to the doll in the corner. She didn't know what she was feeling right now, but this doll, this doll was handsome. I mean, he was just made out of wood with two skinny rod legs and a bulbous head with two patches of white hair on either side, and his lower jaw was just like a, a square, but still, handsome. And what do we have here? Marie, the seven-year-old, said to the doll. It, it's a nutcracker. It cracks nuts, Dad said, producing a nut and putting it in the doll's mouth. He pulled down the lever on its back, and the shell fell away in pieces, leaving only the nut meat, as the story says. Oh my, he's so strong, Marie said. Her father narrowed his eyes. Yeah, I mean, he's made out of wood and designed for basically this one purpose. Why was she playing with his hair? Dad might have thought that these depictions of a seven-year-old were interesting, but he had a lot of stuff to do. It was still Christmas Eve, and he still had to go rescue his wife from Drosselmeyer's conversation. If Marie wanted to, she could play with the doll, just, you know, don't be weird. He didn't say, but probably should have. Marie said she couldn't not take care of such a beautiful thing. The father cocked an eyebrow. All right, then. Ten minutes later, Fitz heard cracking and giggling as he went to see what his sister was up to. Because the bar for entertainment in 1800s Germany was fairly low, Marie was cracking some nuts in the doll's mouth and loving it. Of course, she only cracked the small nuts. That way, he wouldn't need to open his mouth that wide. As the original text says, he looked the most attractive that way. She looked away for a second. And when she looked back, Fritz was jamming the biggest nut Marie had ever seen in the nutcracker's mouth. Before she could do anything, he was pressing down on the lever of the thing's back. Telling the soldier to break the nut. Break it! His officer commanded it. Something broke, but it wasn't the nut. The nutcracker's bottom jaw snapped off. And Fritz finally relaxed, shaking his head. Pitiful soldier. Marie then took a silk ribbon and tied the nutcracker's jaw back in place, hugging him and telling him that she was sorry. Drosselmeyer, having just finished clock-splaining his toy to anyone he could rope into his orbit, chuckled. <laughs> Too bad about the ugly little doll. Marie froed her brow. She said that if Drosselmeyer was in the doll's coat and pants, she couldn't imagine Drosselmeyer looking as attractive. This being an exchange that's actually in the book. Drosselmeyer's face grew red and mom and dad stepped in, saying that they were pumping the brakes on all these interesting comparisons of the attractiveness of an old man to a doll. It was time for bed. Marie was putting away her toys. The new doll she had received that night, named Madame Clarette, had been placed in the glass case in the living room. But as Marie thought of the beautiful, injured nutcracker, she moved Madame Clarette to the lower shelf. Fritz had put his own soldiers away, demanding that they not dare not off when he's not around. And Marie went to get the nutcracker. He was laying on the table, and the seven-year-old brushed his face with her hand and said that she would take care of him. Godfather Drosselmeyer would patch him up. He knew all about, wait, as soon as she said Drosselmeyer, she could have sworn a look of disgust flashed on the nutcracker's face. Marie blinked and it was gone replaced by the Nutcracker's sad smile, a descriptor I would not use for any Nutcracker face. When she had rebandaged his injury, she took him to his bed and laid him down, locking the case before going to bed herself. 
That was when she saw the owl. The one on top of the grandfather clock. The metal owl that usually sat up there had his wings spread over the clock face, obscuring it. Oh, and he now talked. Tick-tock, Stahlbomb clocks only whirr and purr. Mouse King is so sharp of ear. Only sing the old song, ding-dong, ding-dong. I promise you he won't last long. Marie nodded. All right, well, this was normal and good. It was bedtime. She blinked, and the owl was gone, replaced by the one-eyed godfather Drosselmeyer, squatting on top of the clock, his coattails now covering its face. He was grinning at Marie. Uh, hi, godfather. I thought you went home. Also, how did you get up there? This is, this is weird, Marie uttered, but Drosselmeyer didn't answer. The old man only grinned. In response, there was a pitter-patter, a squeaking from all around. In the walls, floor, and ceiling, they poured into the room from holes that Marie and her family didn't even know existed. Mice. Maybe they shouldn't have shoved sweets in the Christmas tree. Just saying. Lining up in rows, the mice became still. Then they cheered three times, which, in mouse language, might have been intimidating, really was probably just adorable squeaks. Marie stood wide-eyed. What? All right, well, this has been... Yeah, she was going to go ahead and run for her life now. Bye. She turned, and she was thrown backward. A giant mass of something exploded from the doorway, sending Marie sprawling back, straight through the glass case. She guessed she heard it shatter, but whatever realization she had was soon replaced by the shock of what came next. It was what had pushed her back. Seven mouse heads emerged from the doorway, each looking matted, vile, and diseased. Then, things got weird. The seven mouse heads were attached to the same mouse body. The mouse king stood up straight, and his army cheered. Then, he laid eyes on Marie. Or, so she thought. It was only because Marie was in the glass case. The Mouse King wasn't looking at Marie, but the Nutcracker. Marie looked up, above her, to the place where she had placed the giant Nutcracker. He was no longer laying on Madame Clarette's plush bed, but he was standing, drawing the sword at his side. He threw off his blanket and shouted a, I don't know, battle cry? Crack, 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 stupid mouse pack. Squeaking, squealing, gnawing, clawing. Crack, 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 stupid mouse pack. The whole mouse army turned to see the Nutcracker standing triumphantly when our wooden hero turned to Fritz's toy chest. My dear vassals, friends, and brothers, will you assist me in this difficult fight? Fritz's toys cried out that yes, they would assist the Nutcracker and follow him through victory, battle, and death, but hopefully just the first one. So imagine Toy Story, and then imagine that the toys were a violent army that pummeled mice to death. And then you're getting close to the scene that unfolded before Marie as she laid half in the glass cabinet, surrounded by broken glass. But no matter how many mice the toys relentlessly smeared on the stone floor, the seven-headed mouse king's army grew with more and more that poured in from the streets and out through the walls. Gingerbread men came to life only to have their legs bitten off by the mice. Fritz's toy soldiers and other toys that had joined the fight screamed as they were dismembered by tiny mouse hands. All in all, it was pretty messed up. Soon, only a few toy soldiers remained. The cabinet and island, the only place in the room not covered in mice, 
Marie knew she had to join the fight. She plucked off a shoe and, throwing it at the mouse king swaggering triumphantly across the room, she then noticed a long piece of glass embedded in her left arm, the blood streaming down it and pooling beneath her. As things started to go dark, her last thought was, oh, that's bad. She's awake, Marie heard as she opened her eyes. Her mother and father came rushing in. Marie struggled to sit up. Were all the mice gone? Was the nutcracker safe? Her parents looked at each other. What? You know, they groaned. You know, they had trusted her to put the toys away and then go to bed, but instead she gets all of her brother's toys out. Eats cookies and what was it, a mouse? That's what scared her and sent her sprawling through the cabinet? Well, it was a good thing her mother got up and noticed she was out of bed. That was against the rules and also bleeding out in front of the Christmas tree. They barely got to her in time. She tried to tell them of the legion of mice that wanted to kill the nutcracker, but there was like this epic battle. And then she threw a shoe and then everything went dark. Her doctor father nodded. Cool, cool. But you know, according to the tropes that must be followed in a story like this, they couldn't take her seriously. Sorry, just the rules. The nutcracker was safe back in the toy cabinet, though. The one that didn't shatter. Marie sat back and sighed as her father explained her mandatory few days of bed rest. And as the days ticked on and the medicine led her in and out of a fitful sleep, she swore she could hear a voice talking to her. It was the voice of the nutcracker, distinct yet weak, saying, Marie, dear lady, I already owe you so much but there is more you could do for me. A really odd way to say thank you while also kind of guilting the person into doing more. One night, after her mom finished with her story, there was a commotion at the door. I must see for myself how the sick and injured Marie is doing, Godfather Drosselmeyer said before springing through the door. Marie sat up. Drosselmeyer, he had been so ugly. Why was he on the clock, hiding its face and keeping it from striking to scare away the mice? Why did he call the Mouse King and leave her and the Nutcracker to die? The mom, who was about to apologize to Judge Drosselmeyer, was somehow further confused by what happened next. Instead of saying to the little girl that, yes, they've established that he's ugly, and that it's also apparently okay in this text for a seven-year-old girl to constantly comment on the attractiveness of an old man, Drosselmeyer grinned a creepy, sinister grin, dropping his head down and his arms out like he was a marionette. And he launched into a song of his own. It's kind of long and boring, but basically, it said that the owl is back, and the mouse king has gone away. The clock will sound now. Also, he wasn't going to explain why he was squatting on top of their grandfather clock. The mom was very confused. What? What was all that? And why was he dancing like he was in an in-sync video? As the old man took a seat next to her daughter in bed, he told the mother that it was just an old, incredibly specific watchmaker's ditty. Now Marie could be mad at him about not putting out all 14 eyes of the Mouse King and leaving her to certain death, or she could thank him for fixing the Nutcracker. With that, he produced the Nutcracker, fixed from when Fritz had jammed a massive nut into its mouth. Drosselmeyer said that Marie had to admit it. The Nutcracker was ugly, way uglier than him. Then he said that he could tell the story 
of how such ugliness came to the Nutcracker and his family. Or maybe she already knew the story of Princess Pat, the witch, Mouse Rinks, and the clockmaker. Fritz cheered. He was excited to hear the story. And Marie was a captive audience, so Drosselmeyer began his tale. We will dive very deep into the Nutcracker's origin story, but that will be right after this. Once upon a time, in a faraway kingdom, blah, 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 there was a king. Surprise, a kingdom has a king and a queen. Together, they had Princess Pat. One day, the king wanted sausages. He wanted to have his friends over to eat sausages. You could call it a sausage party, but we won't. He rolled out the golden sausage boiler and the literal silver platters, and they all got to work. Well, I guess it was like an old royal family recipe because only the queen cooked sausages and made the sausage soup, aided by her lady-in-waiting. The sausage soup had a secret ingredient, straight lard. And as the queen was dropping the lard cubes into the pot, she heard a voice. Give me some of that fat, sister. I'm a queen and I deserve to eat this feast as well. It was more of a squeak from the floor below. And the queen looked down to see, of course, Lady Mouse Rinks. Now, Lady Mouse Rinks lived in a castle and claimed to be a distant relation of the royal family. Also, she was a mouse and the monarch of Mouseland. She claimed to have a large castle under the stove. The story is very clear for some reason when it says that the queen and her husband did not diplomatically recognize the authority of Mouseland or its monarchs. But the queen wasn't heartless. Sure, what could be the harm in offering Lady Mouse Rinks some cubed lard? She quickly learned the harm when Lady Mouse Rinks' entire court came out to take advantage of the queen's kindness. Ants, uncles, the seven princes of the unrecognized kingdom of Mouseland, they all swarmed the plate of cubed fat. It was only because of the combined efforts of both the queen and her lady-in-waiting that any fat was saved. Of course, it had been thoroughly chewed and passed over by a teeming horde of mice, so she put it directly in the soup. At dinner that night, the king stirred his greasy sausage soup with his scepter and then took a sip. Immediately, he gasped. His eyes looked up to the heavens and he fell back into his chair, sobbing and moaning with his hands over his face. He collapsed on the floor and went fully catatonic. His guests surrounded him. The royal physician couldn't get a pulse, but it was determined that the physician was just really bad at his job when the king stammered out a too little fat before fainting. The queen flew to her king's side, saying that it was Lady Mouse Rinks. She and her horde had eaten the fat. The king would have the guilty mice driven before his feet and punished hard. To complete this job and exact the king's justice, they turned to the young, daring, and devastatingly brilliant Christian Elias Drosselmeyer. He invented the mousetrap. A bit of fat disguised the trap, and the cage would come down on the mice. Of course, Queen Mouserinks was too smart for that. But pretty much every one of her friends and family were not, because, hey, free fat. Drosselmeyer took the sentient, speaking subjects of the kingdom of Mouseland and handed them over to be summarily executed. Facing what can only be described as a massacre, I'm so sorry. Queen Mouserinks had no choice but to flee her ancestral home of under the stove. But before she left, 
she had a message for the human queen. She said that her mouse family was dead and that the queen should take care of her infant daughter, make sure she wasn't bitten to death by mice, which, yeah, some great imagery for an episode that comes out on Christmas Day. In the smoke of the human queen's burning dinner, Queen Mouse Rinks escaped. It wasn't a week later that the whole house awoke to a scream. In response to Queen Mouse Rinks' threat, the human queen had arranged a guard for the princess. Every night, 10 women would hold 10 cats, keeping them purring all night long to ward off any mice. This worked out exactly as well as you'd think it would. A few nights later, the ladies were exhausted, and the cats determined that they had enough. At that, Mouse Rinks made her move. When the nurse who woke up to the sound of crying saw Mouse Rinks scurrying away from the daughter that night, she scooped the baby up. Her screaming woke the house. The baby was just a giant head attached to a little body, her eyes green and huge, and her freaky joker mouth now stretched to the edges of her face. Basically, she was a living nutcracker. The queen was crushed, and the king was livid. The same king who was still munching on sausages with the full amount of fat in them. Because his daughter might have been transformed by a magical mouse, but that didn't mean he was going to slow down on the impending heart disease. Christian Elias Drosselmeyer was given another job. Cure the princess or die. He had four weeks or he'd lose his head. Go. Drosselmeyer just sat around for four weeks until he linked up with his buddy, the court astrologer, where after some magic, reading, and more magic, they found the solution. The princess would have to eat the sweet core of the nut, Krakatuk. As I guess everyone knows in the story within a story, the nut Krakatuk was pretty much unbreakable. I say pretty much because what it took was a young man who had never shaved nor worn boots. He would have to bite it open with his mouth and give the cord to the princess with his eyes closed. And he couldn't open his eyes until he took seven steps backwards without tripping or stumbling. The king was supportive, but the prospect of losing his head still hung over Drosselmeyer's head. The king informed him that they would find the rare nut Krakatuk and the young man who could do this. To find the nut, there would be this whole hero's journey thing where Drosselmeyer and the astrologer would take off on foot to look for the nut. For the guy, well, they just put an ad out in the newspaper for someone who hadn't shaved or worn boots. They were already looking for a legendary nut to cure the nutcracker princess after the magical mouse queen bit her, after they hunted down her people, after the king was embarrassed at a dinner, after the mice took advantage of the queen's kindness and ate all the fat. No reason to make things complicated. Christian Elias Drosselmeyer, now with more hair on his face and considerably less on his head, looked at the rare nut, Krakatuk. Man, can you believe it took us 15 years of traveling the world and yet your brother, Christoph Zachariah Drosselmeyer, had it in Nuremberg the whole time? Yeah, lucky break, Drosselmeyer said. Also a lucky break that Christoph Zachariah had a handsome son who had never shaved nor worn boots. Good thing my brother is a terrible father and never taught his son to be a proper gentleman, R. Drosselmeyer said. And how, the astrologer replied. Guys, I'm, I'm standing right here, the son said. Drosselmeyer nodded. Yes, yes you are. In you go, nutcracker. And Drosselmeyer shoved him into the astrologer's library. As it turned out, the young man had the name because he used to stand in front of his father's shop and crack nuts for all the young girls. 
as popular kids are wont to do. The astrologer talked with his buddy, the heretofore unmentioned court wizard, who told them to hold off a bit. It was nice that Drosselmeyer sent Krakatuk ahead of them back to the kingdom, but more than a few young men had broken their jaws on Krakatuk, the unbreakable nut. If Drosselmeyer waited a little bit, the court wizard had it on good authority that the king would offer his daughter, riches, and ultimately his kingdom to the young man who could break the nut and restore the princess's beauty. Wait, wasn't she a baby when she was cursed? And also, don't you mean cure her of her horrible affliction? The young man asked. Eh, sure, the wizard replied. When they arrived at the throne room, after the king announced the new deal, two men were being carried out, supervised by specialized dentists. Their copious peach fuzz streaked with blood. When the princess saw the young man, she clapped her little wooden hands. Yes, let this be the one who would save her. She wanted to marry this guy. And he did save her. He put the uncrackable nut in his mouth, bit down, and the shell shattered. He spit out the core, and without looking, handed it to the 15-year-old princess, who gulped it down, instantly turning back into her human self. The whole court watched in anticipation as the young Drosselmeyer took his seven steps backward. Finally, here it was, a happy ending. Except on the seventh step, there was a scream. The young man felt something scurry under his foot, and he instinctively tried to miss it, but with no luck. He felt the crunch, but the damage was done. The young man stumbled on his last step and tumbled to the floor. What fell was the 18-ish-year-old human man, but wood clattered on the ground. He now looked as the princess had looked only moments ago. He was a nutcracker now too, in name and appearance. The whole court looked on what had tripped him and spotted the crumpled form of Queen Mouserinks. Her plan about to be foiled, she had rushed out to make the young man stumble. Her revenge had cost her her life though, as the young man had stepped on her neck. With her last labor breaths, she said that there was another. The Nutcracker, someday, would die by the hand of her seven-headed mouse son that had been born after the destruction of her people. The king stood up. Well, he didn't care about any of that. Tossed the little mouse queen into the furnace, banished Drosselmeyer and his ugly toy from the kingdom forever. Let's get cooking. Drosselmeyer, the clockmaker, exploded from the crowd. The Nutcracker had saved his daughter. The king made a promise. Yeah, and now he's an ugly toy. Daughter, are you into this? The king barked. The princess stuck out her tongue. Ugh, yeah, no thanks. Even though she had looked just like the guy five minutes ago. So, Drosselmeyer picked up the nutcracker and left the castle. The astrologist did some pro bono horoscope work though and caught up with Drosselmeyer, saying that there was a prophecy. If the nutcracker could defeat the seven-headed mouse king and find the lady that would love him despite his looks, the curse would be lifted. Marie was allowed to get out of bed again a few days later, and she stole into the living room. The glass cabinet had been repaired, and Marie looked at the nutcracker standing on the shelf. She told him that she believed in him, that he could count on her. Marie thought that she heard a voice what would by now be a 30-year-old man in the toy, was saying, 
Little Marie, guardian sweet, I'm yours to keep, little Marie. At that, the rest of the family walked in, and Drosselmeyer took a seat next to Marie. When Marie asked him why he never helped the Nutcracker, Drosselmeyer scooped her up and put her in his lap, saying that he couldn't help the Nutcracker. The Mouse King would pursue the toy in every land and across any border. Marie was the only one who could help him, just by being faithful and strong. When he said that, the family looked at each other. What what was happening here? The dad, who's the physician, took Marie from Drosselmeyer's lap. Mouse King, sentient nutcrackers. Yeah, he was probably getting sick or something. She better not sit with him. That night, in the moonlight, Marie heard it before she saw it. There was a struggle and a scrape on the other side of the room. But before she could sit up, there were 14 eyes on her nightstand. He was here. I must have your sugar balls and marzipan, or I will bite your nutcracker through. Marie clutched her covers before swallowing hard. Yes, anything for his life. She saw the sharp teeth of the Mouse King's seven mouths before he disappeared in an instant. If someone is extorting you, threatening your loved ones for a payoff of some sort, the only way to make sure they don't do it again is to cave immediately and give them everything they ask for without resistance. That's why it was so surprising when the Mouse King came back the following night after destroying Marie's sugar balls and marzipan. The next night, he wanted the sugar dolls, and once again, Marie acquiesced. She was grateful that the Nutcracker was safe. That was all that mattered. The Mouse King's sugar carnage didn't go unnoticed, and the family considered a few options. They thought about getting a cat, but Mom said that she didn't want to have cats on the furniture. I mean, you have mice getting all over your floor, spreading diseases and feces everywhere, but no, can't have a cat getting on the furniture. Drosselmeyer even came with one of his famous mouse traps, one of the ones he had used to massacre Queen Mouse Rink's family and get everyone into this trouble. But that didn't work, because just that night, the Mouse King was back. Marie heard the scratching, and when she opened her eyes, he was next to her. She felt his hot breath coming from seven mouths as he sang a poem. Don't go into the house, don't go into the feast. Can't let yourself get caught like a wretched little beast. Give me all your picture books, give me your Christmas dress or I'll nibble the nutcracker all to bits and you'll never have any peace. Squeak. And yeah, he inserted another line in there somewhere and messed up his own rhyme scheme. But what do you expect? He's a mouse. The Mouse King gave her a day for this one. It was a big ask. The next morning, she stood alone in the living room before everyone else was awake. After learning that the nutcracker was Drosselmeyer's nephew, a 30-year-old man trapped inside a doll she didn't carry him around or kiss him. In fact, she felt a little shy around him now. Today was different though. She broke down crying, telling him of the Mouse King's threats and of his latest demand, her Christmas dress and picture books. It was then that she noticed the blood. On the Nutcracker's neck, there was a large spot of blood. Immediately, she wrenched him from the case and wiped away the spot. As she did, she felt him growing warm in her hand even moving, as the story says. She set him down, and he looked to her. My dear Miss Stahlbaum, 
to whom I owe everything, do not sacrifice your picture books or your Christmas dress for me. I need a sword. If I had a sword, I could... And then he froze, becoming still and lifeless once again. Marie clenched her fist. She wasn't scared anymore. A sword. All he needed was a sword, and Marie knew just where to find one. Her eight-year-old brother, of course. That night, as Marie lay in bed, there was a scuffle and a crash from the living room. Then silence. She sat up in bed. The Mouse King. It was then that a form, a small one, darkened her doorway. She shirked back at the thought that the Mouse King had finally avenged his people and murdered the Nutcracker. You know, the guy who wasn't part of the selfish royal family and had nothing to do with the massacre. But she breathed when she saw the Nutcracker standing at the foot of her bed. His sword coated in blood, as the story actually says. It was over. The Mouse King had been mortally wounded. Marie was puzzled. Wait, it all happened out of you, just like in a paragraph? No epic battle, no payoff for this whole story. Anyway, she was so glad that he was safe. He held out his hand. In it, he held the seven crowns of the Mouse King on a necklace. The Mouse King was dead, and he wanted Marie to follow him so he could show her the most wonderful things. Would she do it? Would she follow him? In what is still child abduction, even if the 30-year-old is in the body of a toy, Marie followed, but said she still had to be back by morning. The Nutcracker opted for a shortcut, and, climbing through the wardrobe and beating C.S. Lewis to the punch by about 130 years, they found themselves in a mystical land. So... I'm going to save you a lot of descriptions that a child in the 19th century would be super into, like the Nougat Path and the Sugar Almond Gate, because yeah, we are in the Candy Kingdom. They passed Christmas Forest, Marie watched a ballet, then they went for a walk past Orange Creek, Lemonade River with its hazelnut fish, and Almond Milk Lake, which is actually way worse for the environment than regular Milk Lake, look it up. They passed through the country town of Bonbonville and sailed across Rose Lake to the capital. Finally, they enter Confectionery City, the capital of the Candy Kingdom. Okay, there is a lot of half-baked in-universe lore about the Candy Kingdom. They have some sort of god called the Candyman, a being that controls the destiny of the inhabitants of the Candy Kingdom and will bring about its ultimate doom. Any invocation of his name will cease all conflict and force all participants to reflect on the nature of humanity and its ultimate fate. There was also a time when the city was being terrorized by a giant, and they just offered up a district for it to ravage, to save the others. The giant, named Sweet Tooth because, why not, took them up on their offer, likely devouring countless candy citizens before continuing on his way. When Marie and Nutcracker found their way into the bustling capital, there was a procession leading to the Almighty Sun that was interrupted. It's a lot to take in in the Candy Kingdom. And not only had Nutcracker been there before, He was their king. He was met by a crowd of beautiful candy dolls at Marzipan Castle, embracing their lord, Nutcracker. He introduced them to seven-year-old Marie, asking them if they agreed with him, that she was beautiful. At dinner, Nutcracker smiled as he handed her a golden mortar full of sugar. Marie smirked and started to grind the sugar, and as she did, a wonderful aroma began to rise from it. As she smelled it, She felt like she was rising higher and higher in the room, and the room itself became a pleasant sensory jumble of sound, light, and smell. She blinked, and her mother was standing over her. 
telling her to get ready for breakfast. Marie sat up in her own bed. Marie sat there, waiting for her family to stop laughing at her. She would have to wait a long time. She told them of her dream, of the battle with the Mouse King and the living Nutcracker who showed her all around an exhausting two chapters of the Candy Kingdom. Her parents said that she was just a silly little girl, but they were silenced when she presented the crowns. They were the crowns the Nutcracker had given her, the ones that had come off the heads of the Mouse King. Her father took the crowns into his hands. Huh, now that was strange. He didn't even know what type of metal this was. Those? They heard from the doorway. It was Godfather Drosselmeyer, and he was chuckling. He gave those little crowns to her on her second birthday. Didn't she remember? Marie, completely nonplussed that the old man was trying to gaslight a child, stood, saying that the old man knew everything. Tell them. Tell them the Nutcracker was his nephew from Nuremberg. Drosselmeyer frowned and shook his head. Foolish, ridiculous nonsense. Dr. Dad then chimed in, saying that if Marie the seven-year-old, ever insisted that the Nutcracker was Drosselmeyer's nephew again, he would throw it out alongside any of her other dolls, despite Drosselmeyer himself having put the idea in her head with the story he told in front of the whole family and then confirming it the other night with her sitting on his lap, but you know, whatever. So Marie was sufficiently silenced. That didn't stop her from thinking of the magical time in the Candy Kingdom and all she and the Nutcracker had been through. One day, as Drosselmeyer was repairing the clock in the room, Marie sat in front of the glass case. She looked up at the reportedly beautiful Nutcracker. Oh dear, Mr. Drosselmeyer, she found herself saying, if you were really alive, I wouldn't be like Princess Purely Pat and hate you just because you stopped being handsome for my sake. Just then, she found herself on the floor with her mother standing over her, hands on her hips, telling her to get off the floor. The judge's nephew had just arrived from Nuremberg. She needed to behave herself. Marie was stunned. There, standing with Drosselmeyer, was a man wearing a red coat trimmed with gold, shoes, stockings of white silk, and a powdered wig. Basically, he looked like a nutcracker, but a human nutcracker. He bowed to Marie with a knowing smirk. He gave her toys and sweets, similar to ones that she had lost in the horrible mouse infestation a few days ago, he heard. And to Fritz... The eight-year-old, he gave an actual saber. At the table that night, he cracked nuts for everyone. With his right hand, he put the nut in his mouth, and with the left, he pulled on the braid of his wig. And by doing so, he cracked even the hardest to pieces. No one really making the connection that Drosselmeyer's nephew, who dressed like a nutcracker, and about whom they had a massive fight with Marie that morning, was entertaining the family by cracking nuts with his teeth. Like a nutcracker. When the grown man asked if he could be alone with the seven-year-old girl, the family didn't have a problem with it. When they were alone before the glass case, the nephew turned to Marie. She had saved him. When she said she wouldn't hate him for being ugly, he became his attractive self again. You're welcome. Then, he knelt down. I, Jason, am going to quote this next part directly. See if you can spot my additions. Oh, Noble young lady who is still a seven-year-old child, please make me happy by giving me your worthy hand and sharing my kingdom and crown 
despite being in no way able to consent to a marriage on account of you being seven. If you do, you shall reign with me in Marsbang Castle, for there I am king. Marie took him by the hand. Yes, yes, she would. He was a gentle and good man, despite the fact that he was proposing marriage to a seven-year-old. Since he ruled such a wonderful land, she accepted him as her bridegroom. So, they were engaged. In a year, when she was eight, he came to take her, the eight-year-old, to his kingdom with a golden carriage drawn by silver horses. The story says that they were married in due time. I'm hoping it's a lot of time, because a lot of time was due. At their wedding, there were 22,000 dancers dressed in pearls and diamonds, in a show of wealth and power limited to only the most hardened of dictatorships. It's said that she's still there, reigning with the Nutcracker over Christmas forests and marzipan castles. The end. So there you have it, the original story of the Nutcracker. So how do we get from that to the ballet? Well, it was written in 1812 by E.T.A. Hoffman, a German writer, and then Alexander Dumas, the French author of The Count of Monte Cristo and the Three Musketeers, looked at the work and said, oh no, this won't do. And though I haven't been able to find a version of it, he reportedly toned down several of the darker elements. And it was his work that was made into a ballet show in 1892 which, over the next century, grew into something of a Christmas tradition around the world. There are still a lot of unanswered questions in the story, like, what's the deal with the Candy Kingdom? And why is the son of some guy in Nuremberg its king, after spending a decade or two cursed by a magic mouse queen? Or why did Drosselmeyer just give away his nephew, instead of trying at all to save the young man? I mean, he killed a whole generation of mice, why not one more seven-headed mouse to save a family member? You can dig into this too, there, there are deeper themes. E.T.A. Hoffman was an author of the Romantic Era, one defined as rejecting the rigid world of the Industrial Revolution, e.g. the clockwork people that Drosselmeyer made, and the rules imposed on young Marie, for an authentic, imaginative, beautiful world, like the Candy Kingdom. In the end, an ending that was actually changed for the famous ballet, Marie rejects her own clockwork world for the freedom and beauty of the Candy Kingdom, which is nice. We just had to go through a story where a seven-year-old girl is berated, humiliated, gaslighted, extorted, and ultimately carried off and married at the age of eight to a grown man. Okay, about that, I honestly can't wrap my head around it. I don't know why it's a plot point. It's ridiculously young, and it's extremely messed up and gross, to say the least. But uh, it's also apparently the root of a holiday classic. Happy holidays. Speaking once again of the holidays, we will be out next week. There won't be a new episode of Myths and Legends. We're working on stuff, and 2020 will be a big year for this podcast and our little production company, but we're going to take a rare week off. See you all next year with a January packed full of Robin Hood, the Norse sagas, and finally, the Trojan War. The creature this week is Frau Perchta from the Alpine regions of Germany and Austria. Frau Perchta, her name possibly meaning the bright one, is a bundle of contradictions. She's presented in some places as a beautiful being of light, or 
elderly and haggard. She has something called a goose foot, which is not actually a goose foot, but it means that one of her feet is bigger than the other. That either speaks to her being able to shapeshift, since she was unable to lay aside her higher goddess nature, or because she just spent too long pushing a pedal while sewing. The much more interesting version, the haggard old woman, is hunched and wrinkled with a long nose, disheveled hair, and tattered garments. She's also the tough but not at all fair holiday enforcer. If you spin wool during the holidays, she'll get you. If you fail to partake in holiday feasting, she'll get you. And what does get you look like? Well, her most famous role comes during the 12 days of Christmas between the 25th and January 6th, where she's the bad cop to St. Nick's good cop. She'll come and see if the children or the young servants in the house have been good or bad, and if they've worked hard all year. If they've been good, they might get a silver coin the next day. Fun. If they've been bad, Frau Perchta is not messing around. She will slit open the child's belly and remove their organs, and then she'll fill them with garbage. At the end of the holidays, she'll return to her mountains and tend to her forests. So yeah, happy holidays. And if over the next 12 days, a haggard old woman stops by with a knife and a trash bag, maybe don't answer the door. That's it for this week. Myths and Legends is by Jason and Carissa Weiser. Our theme song is by the band Broke for Free, and the Creature of the Week music is by Steve Combs. There are links to even more music in the show notes. I want to say thanks again to Simply Safe for sponsoring us this week. Time is running out on Simply Safe's huge holiday offer. It's their biggest sale of the year. Simply Safe has everything you need to protect your home and family, like a smart lock and video doorbell for your front door, and an army of sensors that guard every room in your house. Get 25% off plus a free camera at simplysafe.com/legends. This sale ends December 31st, so go to simplysafe.com/legends. All right. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next year. Mm-hmm.